Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I want to wish a happy holidays to those of you who celebrate whatever it is you may be celebrating. Before we really dive in to the meat and potatoes of this episode, I do want to note that this might be a little bit on the shorter side compared to normal episodes because today's study guide subject, Elisa Bonaparte, had a fairly short life. She was only in her 40s when she died. While Elisa Bonaparte almost certainly never came up in a high school history class, she is probably my favorite of the Bonaparte siblings, sorry Lucien, because she was so much like her famous older brother, even if she is one of the more obscure Bonapartes. After all, according to Napoleon himself, quote, Elisa has the courage of an Amazon, and like me, she cannot bear to be ruled. And as we're going to see in today's study guide, both of those things are true. Her study guide has an awful lot of art, a non-nightmarish wedding that includes quite the age gap, and a classic Bonaparte name change. Let's begin. The girl who would eventually become Elisa Bonaparte is born on January 3rd, 1777 in Corsica, Her birth name, depending on exactly what source you're reading and how they translate it, is either Maria Anna, Mariana, or Marianne Bonaparte. Her parents are, surprise, surprise, Letizia and Carlo Bonaparte. And yes, we are all going to get really bored of hearing those two names when it comes to the parents of the Bonaparte clan. Because Alicia goes through multiple name changes throughout her life, I'm just going to refer to her as Alisa throughout the podcast to make things a little bit easier. Alisa is actually the first of the Bonaparte daughters to actually survive past infancy. She is not the first girl that Letizia gives birth to, but the rest of them had died as infants. Elisa is about eight years younger than Napoleon, so growing up, the two aren't that close. She's only a toddler when her older brother leaves to mainland France to get a proper education, and the only major interaction they have before Napoleon leaves her school is when she gets him into a ton of trouble for eating a basket of figs and grapes, or at least that's what she tells her parents had happened. As it turns out, Elisa was actually the one who had eaten that giant basket with some help of a friend. But Napoleon is blamed, he is punished, he goes off to school, and the two siblings don't have all that much contact after that. As a result of the age gap, and because Elisa is a girl, and people in 18th century France don't pay all that much attention to girls, we just don't know that much about her childhood. Until 1784, when Elisa is seven and a charity raises money for Elisa to go to school in France. And this does make sense. After all, she is the child of a fairly well-off member of the Corsican government. You would want this sort of child to be educated, but the Bonaparte family themselves can't quite 
afford to pay tuition, so why not have a charity sweep in? While Elisa is getting ready to leave for mainland France, this is right when her father Carlo starts getting sick and right when Joseph starts leaving mainland France to return to Corsica to take care of the family. So Joseph is leaving France right when Elisa is going to France. She ends up attending the convent school of Saint-Cyr, which is right by Versailles and has an amazing reputation. Saint-Cyr had been founded by Louis XIV's second wife, Madame de Maintenon, and this is where the French nobility and anyone who wants to be anyone sends their daughters. Elisa being sent to Saint-Cyr is super exciting. This means she's actually going to be educated, which many women in 18th century France don't get to do, and every single graduate of Saint-Cyr is given a free trousseau as a congratulations for making it through our rigorous education program. However, Elisa doesn't necessarily have a great time at school. She is one of the poorer students at Saint-Cyr, which means she has a lot of trouble fitting in socially with the other students who tend to be members of the French nobility. As a result of this, from a very early age, she is made extremely aware of the importance of social status. And this is going to be a trend that will run through the rest of Elisa's life. Also, as it turns out, she isn't quite as good of a student as her older brothers, specifically Joseph and Lucien. For example, for the rest of Elisa's life, she is going to be infamous for how bad of a speller she is. But luckily for Elisa, her older brother Napoleon is going to a military school that's right by Saint-Cyr, so he's able to keep a decently close eye on his little sister. But a year after Elisa moves to France in 1785, their father, Carlos, dies of stomach cancer and Napoleon has to go back to Corsica to help deal with family stuff. So suddenly Elisa is alone at school. Elisa is going to muddle through Saint-Cyr through the start of the French Revolution. However, she's only a teenager when the revolution breaks out in 1789, so she's not exactly extremely cognizant of what's going on politically. And I mean, let's cut her some slack. She's 12. Most 12-year-olds probably aren't reading the daily newspapers. I mean, maybe they are nowadays. I don't spend that much time with 12-year-olds. So between 1789-1792, the French Revolution is picking up steam, but Elisa is sitting easy at school. But then in 1792, Saint-Cyr gets shut down because it's associated with a convent and the new French governmental regime, which is getting more and more radical by the day, doesn't exactly fuck with religion, so goodbye Saint-Cyr. Once Saint-Cyr is closed, Elisa's kind of stuck. She doesn't really know anyone in France. Her opportunity to be educated is over. So 15-year-old Elisa is sent back to Corsica to live with her family yet again. 
when she's back in Corsica, the family attempts to set up a marriage between Elisa and a fairly high-ranking French admiral, but for various reasons, this marriage ends up falling through. We don't really know how Elisa felt about this potential marriage. The admiral obviously was much older than her, but according to some of her contemporaries, it may have been a happier marriage than the one she ended up in. But we're not there yet. The year after Elisa ends up back in Corsica, the entire Bonaparte family has to flee Corsica because Joseph, Napoleon, and mostly Lucien have a major falling out with the new nationalist leader of Corsica, Pasquale Pauli. The entire family suddenly finds themselves in danger, so they peace out of Corsica and flee to southern France and settle nearish to Marseille. I mean, yeah, the family's sort of moving through southern France. They're pretty poor at this point. They're just trying to get a foothold, but for convenience's sake, let's just say they're living in Marseille. Elisa may or may not have gone by the name Christine at this time. It's kind of unclear. Some sources say, yeah, she changed her name to Christine. Some say, no, she was still going by Marianne. But once she's 18 in 1795, Elisa is going by Elisa full time. It's unclear where exactly she got the name Elisa, but most sources point to her beloved older brother, Lucien, as the one responsible for this name change. And this makes sense because Lucien and Elisa, as we're going to see as this episode develops, were extremely close, much to the annoyance of the rest of the Bonaparte siblings. So Elisa and her family are in Marseille slash southern France more generally. Things aren't exactly going great. They've lost what little wealth they might have had. They're sort of bouncing around from hostel to hostel. But then Napoleon, who is in the French army, starts to rack up some military victories, which means that he's able to send money to the family. They're able to get an actual house and settle down in Marseille. And once they're in Marseille, Elisa and her two younger sisters, Caroline and Pauline, start to develop a bit of a reputation in French society. Elisa's reputation isn't quite as bad as her younger sisters, and honestly, that's not that difficult. She's mostly known for being energetic and willful, aka she's not quite as charming or as pretty as Pauline and Caroline. After the family is firmly settled in Marseille, and she's officially going by the name Elisa, Elisa meets the man who would become her husband, Felix Pasquale Bacchiocci, who also went by the last name Lavoie, because why not? Basically anyone who is associated with the Bonapartes is going to change their names for fun and giggles. Bacchiocci, aka Lavoie, had been a member of the Corsican aristocracy and was a former army captain. He is 15 years older than Elisa, so she's 18 when they meet, and he's 33. When the two meet, Bakayuchi doesn't have a job anymore. Yes, he had been an army captain, but by 1795, he had been fired from his position. 
Two years after they meet, on May 1st, 1797, Elisa and Bacchiocci marry in a civil ceremony in Marseille. Napoleon, and especially Lucien, do not approve of Elisa's marriage. Both of them think that Elisa could do way better because Bacchiocci was only a former army captain and wasn't all that bright. Metternich, the future Austrian foreign minister, agreed for Napoleon for quite possibly the only time in history, and he also thinks that Bacchiocci is a complete idiot. But it ends up not mattering, because when it comes to matters of the heart, Elisa is pretty independent, and she's going to do whatever the hell she wants, which makes her very much like Lucien in that respect. A month after the civil ceremony, Elisa and Bacchiocci have a religious ceremony at Napoleon's beautiful Lombardian villa, Mombello. The fact that Napoleon lends his Italian villa to Elisa for a religious ceremony suggests that maybe he wasn't all that upset about her new marriage, because if he really was that annoyed, would he have lent her the villa? After all, he didn't lend Lucien the villa to, for either of his marriages. Elisa and Bacchiocci have their religious marriage ceremony the same day as Elisa's little sister Pauline's marriage to General Leclerc. And I think this is something to keep in mind. Elisa and her two younger sisters, Pauline and Caroline, are going to be extremely competitive about everything. Even though Bakuchi is kind of an idiot and none of the Bonapartes like him all that much, he and Elisa have a decently good relationship. They end up having four children, Felix Napoleon, Elisa Napoleon, Jerome Charles, and Frederick Napoleon. So yeah, really creative on the naming. Only their daughter, Elisa, will live past childhood. And in the relationship, Elisa, the wife, not the daughter, is going to be known for being the brains, whereas Bakayuchi will attempt to be the brawn, but isn't really going to be the brawn. And yeah, neither one is going to be all that faithful to the other, but it's sort of in like a good-natured way. They both recognize that they're cheating on each other, but they don't get too angry about it. In 1799, through the family connections to Napoleon, who by now is general of the Italian army and is utterly crushing it in Egypt, Elisa's husband gets a pretty cushy army job as a major in Corsica. For a hot second, it looks like maybe Elisa will join her husband in her home country of Corsica. Elisa thinks it over for a minute and is like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather move to Paris. And that's what she does. She ends up settling at 125 Rue de Marumcio in the 30th quarter of Paris. And once she's in Paris, Elisa is going to establish herself as a center of Parisian society. She and her BFF, big brother Lucien, are going to host an artistic salon together. And at the salon, they're going to promote some of the biggest artists of the post-revolutionary period, like Jacques-Louis David, whose pictures you definitely saw in 
history class or art history class he did all the famous ones of the revolution like the tennis court oath and napoleon's coronation and the death of marat and other ones of classical and roman history etc etc as well as this other artist anton john gross who did some real famous pics of young napoleon they also promote a bunch of cool new writers like rene de Chateaubriand, who is extremely Catholic and extremely conservative and loves what Napoleon is doing in the whole undoing the more radical elements of the French Revolution. And this poet, Louis de Fontaines, who Elisa may or may not have had an affair with. But Elisa and Lucien's salon is doing more than just promoting the arts. She's also using her salon, as well as her political power due to her connections to Napoleon, in order to get some more radical artists and writers off of various censorship lists, which is a great example of how Elisa is very much about getting her own way, thank you very much, and isn't afraid to use more traditional feminine power structures in order to get her way. During her time with the Paris Salon, Elisa gets a reputation for being very witty, if a little sharp-tongued and a little arrogant. Male contemporaries say that she's way too in to politics and science for a young woman of her stature, but I think they might have just been a little bit jealous. About a year in to the fabulous Salon, Lucien's first wife dies and he is completely devastated. Elisa looks at her sad big brother, rolls up her sleeves, and gets to work trying to cheer him up. She helps out raising his two daughters and ensures that the older one, Charlotte, gets enrolled into the very famous and very prestigious Madame Campan's boarding school. She also ensures that Lucien is distracted and entertained by putting on all sorts of fun plays and casting both of them. A bunch of these fun plays involve some very scandalous costumes, including women in pants, which makes Napoleon super annoyed because Napoleon has a much more conservative streak than either Lucien or Elisa. He gets so annoyed that he ends up telling Elisa that she can't do this adaptation of one Voltaire play, but Elisa basically ignores him and is like, look, it's going to make Lucien happy, and that's my goal right now, big brother, so I'm not going to listen to you. However, even though Elisa's having a great time with her salon and with cheering up Lucien, she is starting to have a really tense relationship with her younger sister, Pauline. Pauline is famous for being the beauty of the family, and she is starting to tease Elisa for her appearance. She famously calls Elisa, quote, the thing with arms and legs haphazardly stuck on her body. End quote. And to make matters worse, Pauline's husband is higher ranked in the army with Elisa. Yeah, Elisa is not exactly thrilled about that. Then at the end of 1800, Lucien and Napoleon have that epic falling out over the whole pamphlet scandal, and Lucien gets sent to Spain as the new foreign minister. 
he ends up bringing along Elisa's husband to serve as his secretary. Once again, Elisa is offered the opportunity to go with them. And once again, she's like, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather stay in Paris and hang out in high society. However, she is going to stay in touch, but not with her husband. Most of the letters she writes to Spain in this period are going to be to her beloved big brother Lucien, which really shows whose relationship she cared more about. So Elisa spends the next few years just hanging out in Paris, doing that society artistic thing, generally being fabulous. All of that changes in 1804 when Napoleon names himself Emperor of France. In the process, he gives Elisa's husband a huge promotion. Bakayoshi is suddenly a divisional general in the French army, which is nice given that Bakayoshi is kind of incompetent vis-a-vis military affairs. Elisa should be happy, but she's not. And the center of this unhappiness, as always, is Josephine. Elisa's annoyed that Josephine got to be the empress because this means that Josephine's children are in the line of succession ahead of Elisa and Elisa's children, even though Elisa is more closely related to Napoleon. She's also annoyed that Josephine and her children got all sorts of fancy titles, and Elisa doesn't get any titles, even though she's actually Napoleon's sister. All of Napoleon's sisters are annoyed about this, but Pauline and Caroline are going to throw an entire hissy fit over it, and Elisa isn't going to, which makes Napoleon like her a little bit more than Pauline and Caroline. Because Elisa is somewhat level-headed in all of the coronation drama, when it, time, when it comes time for Napoleon to start handing out kingdoms to various siblings, Elisa is going to be the first one to get a kingdom of her own. And that's exactly what happens. In 1805, Napoleon makes Elisa and her husband the rulers of the principalities of Piombino and Luca. And if you never have heard of Piombino and Luca, that's fine. I hadn't heard of them before doing research on Elisa Bonaparte. And that's because there are these two really tiny bits of land in Tuscany, vaguely across from Alba. Luca is north of Piombino, but like that doesn't really matter. What matters is they're tiny and they're in Tuscany. Elisa formally gets the title of ruler of Luca and Piombino in July 1805 and arrives in Luca later that month. She also gets the titles to Massa and Carrera added to her kingdom later on. The fact that Elisa is given a kingdom first makes the rest of the siblings extremely jealous, especially Elisa's rival sibling, Pauline, who says that Napoleon forgets about the rest of the Bonaparte family when it comes to Elisa. Elisa might be the first of the Bonaparte siblings to have her own kingdom, but it's not exactly like this kingdom is all that big. Napoleon doesn't take either principalities all that seriously. He calls Luca the Dwarf Republic and puts a lot of rules in place that Elisa and her heirs would have to follow. 
For example, they can't get married without Napoleon's explicit permission and approval of future spouses. They can only inherit with permission from the French government, etc., etc. So yes, Elisa now does have a kingdom, but it's not exactly a spectacular kingdom. Once Elisa and her husband are installed in Luca and Piombino, Bacchiochi is put in charge of the kingdom's army, which is extremely tiny, so he at least has something to do on the surface, and that's all he's really going to do, even though there's not that much to do, because while the people of Luca and Piombino don't love being under the control of a French Corsican family, they don't rebel because Luca has a reputation for being extremely peaceful, and that reputation holds. Also, by giving Luca and Piombino to Elisa, Napoleon is technically violating some pretty key bits of the Treaty of Luneville, which makes the Austrian Empire kind of annoyed, but the Austrian Empire is not willing to go to war with Napoleon over this violation just yet, so they're installed. There's no military drama, unlike what happens to poor Joseph in Naples. So Elisa and her husband are sitting very contently on the throne of their new kingdom. But Elisa isn't content to just sit there. She decides to go all enlightened despot on Luca and Piombino, a la her brother Joseph in Naples. She isn't going to have a democratic government or anything like that, because hello, we're talking about the early 1800s in Italy, but Elisa is going to attempt to do some significant reforms to make life better for the average Italian in both principalities. She's going to create a constitution, she's going to push for more fair and equitable laws, such as stripping away feudalism, she's going to reduce public debt, and open schools and hospitals throughout both principalities. The big thing that Elisa is going to attempt during her time ruling Luca and Piombino is to turn this bit of Tuscany into a cultural center. And this attempt is really going to be focused on the bit of Piombino and Luca around Carrara. She's going to start a major sculpture exporting industry based on the marble quarries in Carrara and will end up establishing an academy of arts in Carrara. She will also make her court a center of art and music in Europe. And this is going to happen through one man, a famous violinist named Niccolo Paganini. She ends up bringing Paganini to court to be the official violinist and conductor and also to teach her husband to play violin because Bacchiochi had been wanting to become a violinist for quite some time, except as it turns out, even with Paganini's help, he's not that good, which is more than a little awkward. But Paganini is one of the most talented violinists in Europe, and with him at Elisa's court, Luca Impiombino becomes a center of European music as a result. However, some of Elisa's reforms do cause some serious 
drama. In the process of expanding one of her palaces, Elisa has to tear down an entire city street, as well as the Church of San Pietro and the Church of San Paolo, the latter of which contained a really beloved painting of Madonna and the child. By tearing down this church, Elisa triggers a riot. It does get contained, but this is the first hint that maybe Elisa is missing the forest for the trees. Later on, when she's expanding a palace in the city of Massa, she has to tear down yet another old and beloved cathedral, which once again also almost triggers a riot. So we are seeing in her attempts for artistic reform, Elisa is doing some less than popular things. In the middle of all this reform and attempts to bring new art to Italy, Elisa is still deep in communication with Lucian, who by now had sort of left the Bonaparte family over his love for the second wife and is living in self-imposed exile in Italy slash England. She really is the only Bonaparte sibling to stay in contact with Lucian, and she's writing him a ton of letters trying to convince him to reconcile with Napoleon, renounce his wife, and rejoin the line of succession. These attempts at reconciliation completely fail. But pretty soon, she's going to stop because she has something new to distract her. In 1807, Tuscany officially becomes part of France thanks to Napoleon's amazing military exploits. As soon as Tuscany becomes part of the French Empire, Elisa turns her gaze to that. She wants to be in charge of Tuscany because she had rocked the Luca and Piombino gig, minus those few small little riots over building expansions, and hey, she wants more power. Her younger siblings are getting bigger kingdoms. Why can't she get a bigger kingdom? However, Napoleon doesn't immediately give her control of Tuscany for various political and military reasons. However, by 1808, Napoleon gives in and makes Elisa the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. Elisa immediately moves up north to Florence and sets up an amazing court. Her court will end up becoming a big rival to the court down in Naples, which by now is being run by her little sister Caroline because Joseph has been pushed out of Naples and into Spain due to Napoleon's scheming. Much like in Luca and Piombino, Elisa does do some reforms in Florence. She is going to, you know, push out some of the feudalism, try to improve people's lives. But unlike in Luca and Piombino, her reforms in Florence don't quite go as far. Most of her focus is, once again, going to be expanding arts in the city. And interestingly enough, making sure that all of the laws and government documents are bilingual and are in Italian and in French, not just in French, which is traditionally how it had been. Good for you, Elisa, for being inclusive. While the family is in Florence, Bacchiocci is still in charge of the army and still doesn't have all that much to do because in northern Italy, we aren't seeing the same levels of rebellion against the Napoleonic regime that we do in southern Italy and Naples. I'm not really sure why we don't see that same level of rebellion. 
I personally think it might be because a French regime had been established in northern Italy way earlier. We had had the Italian Cisalpine Republic under Napoleon that had been established way during the French Revolution, whereas the southern Italian regime under Joseph was a much newer thing. But anyway, Bacchiochi just doesn't have all that much to do as the army commander in Florence. So as a result, he and Elisa are going to end up living apart from each other. They're both going to be blatantly cheating on each other, but they're very chill about their side affairs because their relationship is one of the more functional relationships in the whole Bonaparte family drama. I would say in terms of chill relationships, it's probably Lucien, then Elisa, then Joseph, and then everyone else with maybe Pauline and Napoleon himself at the very bottom. But things in Tuscany are not going great because unlike Luca and Piombino, Tuscany is fully annexed to France, which means that technically the French government under Napoleon is running it. And Elisa isn't a fully independent ruler. Anything she does, she needs to get permission from the French government. And she doesn't love that. She wants to be able to do her own thing. And she keeps pushing back against French government policies and kind of sort of refusing to carry them out. It gets so bad that by 1810, Napoleon is kind of threatening to arrest her for not following his rules. And then in March 1810, Elisa finally returns to Paris for Napoleon's second wedding, this time to Marie-Louise of Austria. And this is when their relationship hits a a boiling point. While she's in Paris, Napoleon is like, hey, you owe me some money. I lent you some money for Massa and Carrera. Can you pay me back? Like, right now? And Elisa's like, um, no, I don't have the money. Sorry. And Napoleon's like, well, this isn't going to work for me. No installment for you, little sister. And he literally forces Elisa to give him back the territory of Carrara. And Elisa is pissed. And it's going to get worse because throughout the next year, he starts forcing Elisa to start conscripting men from Luca into the French army, even though Luca is independent. And as the ruler of Luca, Elisa should be able to do her own thing. However, Elisa isn't an idiot. She knows that if she refuses to conscript her men, Napoleon will just roll in and invade Luca. So she starts these conscriptions, which makes her super unpopular in Luca. When she returns to Luca from Florence in 1811, she gets a really cold reception from the people of Luca for the first time. Yes, there'd been little spats over her expansion projects, but it had never been this level of coldness. And Elisa's starting to freak out. In 1812, Elisa goes back to Paris for some family dinner, and the relationship between her and Napoleon warms up a little bit. At this dinner, Napoleon allows Elisa to sit at the top female position at the family table, which is very exciting. 
But as always, family drama abounds because technically Elisa is one of the socially inferior female family members. She is only a princess, whereas one of her younger sisters, Caroline, is a queen. Caroline is really pissy that Elisa got to sit at the higher position. So we're starting to see some serious family infighting. After this awkward family dinner, Elisa goes back to Italy and tries to regain some popularity. But that's not quite going to happen through no fault of Elisa's. Because now we're getting into 1813 and Napoleon's empire is starting to crumble around him. It all starts with his infamous Russian campaign, where if you've read War and Peace by Tolstoy, you know all about this. Basically, Napoleon marches into Russia, tries to invade Russia, take over Russia. We all know that is a terrible mistake. Never fight Russia in the winter. He loses over 90% of his men, comes back to France in ruins, and his position is looking precarious for the first time ever. Napoleon and Elisa's sister, Caroline's husband, Joaquin Marat, who is one of Napoleon's generals, decides to backstab Napoleon and joins the European alliance against Napoleon. He decides that he's going to work with Austria to take over Naples, and in the process, he sends an Austrian army to invade Tuscany. As the Austrians are invading Tuscany, Elisa sees the writing on the wall. She's like, uh, I don't think Napoleon's going to win anymore. I could either fight with him and lose my position, or I could join up with my brother-in-law and the Austrians and maybe keep some money and wealth. So she joins up with her brother-in-law Marat against France. Even though she joins the winning side, she is forced to abdicate as the Grand Duchess of Tuscany, and she ends up having to flee from Tuscany and then Lucca in March 1814. By the time Elisa is fleeing Lucca, she is heavily pregnant with her last son, Frederick, and she and her family are moving through Italy, trying to find a place to stay. They don't quite manage it, which reminds me a lot of previous study guide subject, Sophia of Hanover's mother, Elizabeth Stewart, fleeing the Thirty Years' War while heavily pregnant. Anyway, Elisa's bouncing around through Italy, looking for a place to settle down, give birth, and not get her head cut off. And ultimately, she manages to settle in in Trieste through the help of her younger brother, Jerome Bonaparte. She gives birth to her final son, Frederick, there. And then she and her family wait to see what's going to happen. And what ends up happening is Napoleon abdicates for the first time and is sent to Elba and then flees Elba and tries to reconquer France and Europe in the famous 100 days. And while all that's going on, the Austrian army captures Elisa and imprisons her in a fortress in Brunn, Austria, and they only release her after Waterloo. During her imprisonment by the Austrians, Elisa's like, yeah, I have no plans on joining up with my big brother. I would like to be removed from this narrative. Thank you very much. And once again, in this respect, Elisa is like Lucien. She loves her big brother, really supports him, but really has no interest in getting into a mess because of him. 
Once Napoleon fails at Waterloo and is sent to St. Helena, she is released from the Austrian fortress and moves back to Trieste, where her younger brother Jerome lives. In Trieste, she gets the title the Countess of Campagno and ends up getting a mansion, which is nice. And when she settles in in Trieste, she once again gets back involved into the arts and architecture, which seems to be her one true love. However, Elisa doesn't love Trieste. She really wants to go back to Rome, but for various political reasons, the Allies don't let her back. She also starts writing to Napoleon, being like, hey, big bro, I miss you. I'm sorry you're in exile on St. Helena. Maybe I'll come visit you and live with you and be your little housewife. Except not in, like, a romantic way, because we don't mess around with incest in the Bonaparte family. Unless we're Louis Bonaparte, but we're not there yet. However, Elisa is never going to join her brother on St. Helena because in June 1820, she ends up getting a really bad infection. And because we're in the 1820s and we don't have antibiotics, Elisa ends up dying of this infection on August 7th, 1820 at the age of 43 in Trieste. She ends up being buried in the Italian city of Bologna, and her husband turns the chapel of San Giacomo into a tomb commemorating her. After her death, her, hus- her husband and her surviving children end up being buried in that tomb after they die as well. Elisa's death is completely heartbreaking for Napoleon. When he found out that she had died, he locks himself into a room on St. Helena for hours which is very similar to what he had done when he found out that Josephine had died. And apparently, upon news of her death, Napoleon said, quote, There's the first member of my family who has set out on the great journey. In a few months, I shall go to join her. And that ends up being true. Napoleon dies less than a year after Elisa, who probably was his favorite sibling. Elisa's husband is also completely heartbroken by her death, and he never remarries either. Yes, the two blatantly cheated on each other, but they did have a fairly functional and loving relationship. At the time of Elisa's death, she had two surviving children. Her son Frederick died in 1833 in a riding accident when he was 18 and left no surviving children, and her daughter, also Elisa, lived into her 60s and had one child, but Elisa's grandchild killed himself and left no surviving children, which means that Elisa Bonaparte has no direct descendants, which is a serious shame because she was a pretty badass member of the Bonaparte family, and if any Bonapartes deserve to have direct descendants, it's probably Elisa Bonaparte. So, that's her life. For those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap. Elisa Bonaparte is the oldest surviving Bonaparte daughter. She was born in Corsica, surprise, surprise, in January 1777. As a young child, thanks to a charity, she is sent to France and is educated at a convent school there. She isn't a great student, but she's not a terrible student, and she will stay in France until she's 15 in 1792 when her school gets closed down due to the French Revolution. After her school is closed down, she's sent back to Corsica, almost marries a much older admiral. That marriage falls through. In the next year, the entire family has to flee Corsica to Marseille. 
and Marseille, Elisa and her sisters start to develop a bit of a reputation on Elisa's end. Her reputation is mostly for being willful and kind of a bitch, which we love. In 1795, Elisa, who's 18, meets a former French army captain, Felix Bacchiochi, who's kind of useless, but she likes him anyway, and they get married two years later. Through her brother Napoleon's connections, her husband gets a series of cushy army jobs where he doesn't have to do all that much, and Elisa moves to Paris, where she and her beloved older brother Lucien open an artistic salon, and Elisa becomes known for her artistic taste and her willingness to help get artists and writers off of censorship lists. During her time in Paris, Elisa and Lucien maintain being BFFs, and they continue to irritate Napoleon in fun and exciting ways, and she and her younger and beautiful sister, Pauline, have a really tense and pretty fractious relationship. All that changes in 1804 when Napoleon becomes emperor. Because Elisa wasn't a complete bitch to Napoleon's wife, Josephine, he ends up giving her a kingdom, the principalities of Piombino and Luca. Yes, these principalities are tiny, but Elisa's a princess. Isn't that exciting? She moves the family to Italy, moves into her kingdoms, and starts doing some pretty sweet reforms. Most of her reforms are really going to be focused on making her kingdoms centers of art and culture. Most excitingly, she is going to bring talented violinist Niccolo Paganini into Luca, and will turn Luca into a center of music. A few years later, after a lot of badgering, she convinces Napoleon to make her the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. So now, Elisa gets to set up a court in Florence, which she loves. But as Grand Duchess of Tuscany, Elisa technically has to ask for Napoleon's permission to do anything. And Elisa's not about that life. Quickly, she and her big brother start fighting over who has the power. And it gets so bad that Napoleon threatens to arrest Elisa. The relationship's not looking great, and it gets worse in 1813 when Napoleon utterly fails. In Russia, one of his top generals and Elisa's brother-in-law, Joachim Murat, turns against him, invades Tuscany, and Elisa sees the writing on the wall, turns against Napoleon as well, joins up with Murat, and ends up having to abdicate. She flees through Italy with her family before settling down in Trieste and gives birth to her final son right before Napoleon abdicates for the first time. During Napoleon's first abdication and the subsequent 100 days, Elisa technically is being held captive by the Austrians, but she doesn't let that stop her all that much. After Napoleon's failure at Waterloo in second abdication, Elisa is set free, she becomes an Italian countess, gets super into art yet again, but then in August 1820, she ends up dying unexpectedly of an infection at the young age of 43. So yeah, that is Elisa. I really like her when it comes to the Bonapartes because she sort of did her own thing. She wasn't quite as schemy as Lucien, but I think she played the game a little bit better. Most of the histories of the Bonapartes don't pay all that much attention to her because her kingdom was pretty small. She wasn't like as actively backstabbing Napoleon, but she's fun. She's feisty. Yay, Elisa. 
for this episode, most of my research came from the 1934 article by Slante Bargellini, Paganini and the Princess, William Milligan Sloan's book, Life of Napoleon Bonaparte, Shannon Sullen's article, Elisa Bonaparte, Bacchiocci, Napoleon's Smart Sister, and Joseph Turquin's book, The Sisters of Napoleon, Elisa, Pauline, and Caroline Bonaparte, after the testimony of their contemporaries. This week, I'm also going to be releasing a tangent cast for Patreon members who donate $5 a month or more. The tangent cast is going to be about the true story of Napoleon's death, aka all the conspiracy theories behind Napoleon's death and the not-so-exciting truth. Next week, I'm going to be talking about Louis Bonaparte, who may have been the most irritating of the Bonaparte siblings. So stay tuned for that. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. You can reach the podcast on social media, on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod, or on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else. I'll be sad. Thanks.